This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 40 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am going to talk about cognitive distortions and ADHD. If you or someone you love has ADHD or you suspect that they have ADHD, and it is a struggle to do simple day-to-day tasks that you know are important if staying accountable and following through on things and also just attending and focusing during different tasks that may require sustained effort. If all of that is something that you're working through, then you will find this episode really valuable. Now, I actually cover cognitive distortions in my executive functioning course for parents and clinicians, but I also show you how to work through some cognitive distortions in my time tracking journal. Specifically, this is a tool for parents, for teachers, for therapists who want to help kids through day-to-day tasks that require multiple steps and planning and executive functioning skills. So when those specific tasks come up, 
and you find that you are coming up against some resistance and procrastination and avoiding, a lot of times cognitive distortions are one of the culprits behind those behaviors. This is often why simple things like rewarding and giving treats for completing tasks doesn't always do the trick because it doesn't get to the root cause of the issue. So with the time tracking journal, I actually show you how to work through some of these common distortions and thinking that I'm going to talk through in this episode. So I will kind of describe that as I go through. I did want to mention if you wanted to get access to that time tracking journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. I wanted to start off by defining what exactly a cognitive distortion is. A cognitive distortion is a way of thinking or a belief that is untrue or skewed in some way. Now, of course, when you take people's opinions and analyze them, there's always going to be some variation in what the actual truth is. But a cognitive distortion is something that is substantially skewed from reality and is negatively impacting the person in some way. Two big names that will come up if you did a search for cognitive distortions are Aaron Beck and David Burns. Aaron Beck actually created the basis for cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very well-known and evidence-based method of working through things like depression and anxiety. And David Burns also had a big part in this type of treatment. And both of them played a role in defining cognitive distortions. I actually learned about cognitive distortions early on in my career, but I really was able to fine-tune my knowledge when I read some of the work of David Burns. And actually, in my own personal experiences, when I have gone to therapy myself, have also benefited from some of the techniques and some of the evaluation tools developed by Burns. So I am a big fan of his work. And the thing is, is that there is a lot of professional and personal development out there. There are a lot of life coaches and things like that. And and I'm not saying that those types of people aren't valid, but a lot of the terminology that you'll hear, you'll hear people say things like mindset and limiting beliefs and things like that. And and so those types of things, working on that and some of the things that those types of professionals can work on, I'm not saying that they aren't necessarily effective, but a lot of them are just rebranding and taking some of the terms that were originally defined by Beck and Burns in cognitive behavioral therapy. So one example is a lot of times people will say things like, let's challenge your limiting beliefs. Well, really what they mean is let's challenge some of those cognitive distortions that you're engaging in. Again, it is kind of a semantics issue, but 
personally, I prefer to go back to the original terminology because that is where, where again, it originated. So it can be really helpful to go back and look at the original terms and understand what they mean because it can be really helpful to go back to the source. When we think about cognitive distortions, there are a couple of things that we want to keep in mind. For example, if someone has ADHD, a lot of the challenges that they may experience based on different environments, based on their neurological profile, can have the potential to make them prone to certain cognitive distortions. And the reason is because if you struggle with something, then that helps you build evidence that you are someone who struggles in a certain situation. And that makes you believe certain things about yourself that may or may not be true because it might be that the environment wasn't ideal for you. You didn't have the strategies that you needed in order to be able to advocate for yourself. Maybe you don't have an understanding or you didn't have an understanding of your cognitive profile, of your neurological profile in that given scenario. And as a result, you weren't as successful as you could have been. But the thing is, is that a lot of people don't realize that. So they might after having repeated failures, start to believe certain things that aren't necessarily true. So it's really relevant when you are talking about ADHD because their neurological profile does make it more difficult for them to engage in certain situations that might come easier for neurotypicals and as a result might skew their perception of reality as far as what they think they're capable of. Now, here is something else that is really important to note is that cognitive distortions are not the same thing as cognitive ability. Your level of intelligence does not necessarily have a direct correlation in the number of cognitive distortions that you will engage in. People who are highly intelligent and actually people of all different levels of intelligence in cognitive levels, experience cognitive distortions because it is just human nature. That is just how human beings work. We naturally are going to be subject to certain biases and ways of thinking because we're human. So just because someone is experiencing some kind of cognitive distortion, it doesn't mean they're more or less intelligent than somebody else who isn't engaging in a cognitive distortion in that certain situation. Because again, it's something that everybody does. But having said that, certain conditions do make it more likely that you might be prone to have a certain distortion in a given situation. One final thing before I get into a couple specific examples is that stress and anxiety can exacerbate the distortions. So we are more likely to have distorted thinking when we're stressed or anxious. And if you think about the experiences of someone who is struggling to attend and stay regulated, chances are they're going to be going through different situations throughout the day that 
can cause stress and anxiety because, again, it's stressful when you have to be in a situation that makes you feel uncomfortable and dysregulated, or if you have to do something that you know is going to be challenging for you or that's unfamiliar to you and you're not really sure what to expect, it is more likely that you're going to be anxious. And as that anxiety and fear and stress builds up, it is more likely that you are going to distort things. Part of that is just because you you have cognitive fatigue. Stress makes it more likely that you will get tired, and the more fatigued you are, the more likely you are going to distort things in your mind. Now, if you Google the work of David Burns or Aaron Beck or cognitive distortions, then you will find a list of examples. But I wanted to talk about two specific ones that often come up when you have a child who has a hard time getting through their day-to-day tasks. Specifically, homework is a big one, doing things around the house. So anything that requires someone to do something that isn't one of their most preferred activities and that requires them to have some resilience to challenges. So those two things are magnification or minimization, and they are kind of lumped into the same cognitive distortion category because they're the opposite. So basically, you're either blowing things way out of proportion and magnifying it, or you're minimizing it. And let me just go through and talk about a couple ways this can manifest and some specific examples of both of those. But they do kind of stem from the same thing where you're looking at a situation and you're not necessarily accurate in interpreting the magnitude of it. One of the top ones that comes up If you have someone who doesn't have intact executive functioning or could use some work in that area is magnification. And that is actually one of the top things that I aim to address in the time tracking journal with some of the strategies that are outlined in there. Now, when you magnify something, you look at it and you blow it way out of proportion. And one example that someone with ADHD or any other thing that impacts executive functioning might do this, is that they might look at a task that isn't going to take them that long, but does require some planning and might not necessarily be one of their top preferred tasks and just, again, blows it way out and assumes that it's going to take way more time and effort than it actually will. So if you don't have the ability to look at a task and figure out what are the steps that I need in order to do this, and then figure out how long it's going to take, then that can seem very overwhelming. And so you might blow it up and assume that it's going to take you way more effort than it actually is. And as a result, you stress yourself out about it, you procrastinate. If you are a child, maybe your parents ask you to do it, and you find ways to manipulate or avoid, not from a sense of trying to be nasty or malicious standpoint, but just from a standpoint of trying to cope with the anxiety. This is why when you're working on executive functioning, it's so important to have a way to show kids how to sense time and pay attention to the passage of time and find ways to visualize that during their day-to-day tasks, such as homework chores, um, 
making meals, getting dressed, getting their room picked up, or even ongoing projects that may require something consistent day to day or may require you to have some kind of a an ongoing plan over a couple days, a couple weeks. Again, this could go back to homework assignments, but could carry over to other projects as well. When you don't have an accurate sense of how long something's going to take, then that makes it hard to sense the effort required and give yourself a way to plan ahead. And it makes it way easier to distort the amount of effort and the impact that doing that task is going to have on you. Because what might happen is that you might look at it and think of all the things that you want to be doing. Maybe think of the thing that you're currently doing that you don't want to put down. And you might think, oh, this this thing that I have to go do, it's going to take me so much time and energy, and I'm not going to get to do this, and I'm not going to get to do that, and it's going to be disruptive. And, and it is way easier to blow it way out and just assume that it's going to be way more stressful than it actually is because, again, you don't have that sense of how long it's going to take. And the way that we work around this is, again, experiencing that situation and creating new evidence to counteract that distorted thinking. So that is, again, what I help you to do if you have someone who you're supporting and they are having a hard time sensing time and getting through some of those day-to-day tasks, the way that we guide people through that is, again, to, to talk through that situation and to develop new beliefs and evidence that are going to help them to minimize if they're if they're on the end of blowing things out of proportion is to bring them down and help them to realize where they might be blowing things up excessively. And sometimes the way to work through it is, again, chunking things out into steps, which you do have to have executive functioning skills in order to do that, and helping to facilitate that thought process of just baby steps moving through that task, whatever it might be, to help minimize and make it seem less overwhelming, those things can all be helpful in addressing magnification. And and also even looking back at other similar situations and looking at how long things took, looking how much effort things took, and drawing some comparisons to, again, find that evidence that whatever it may be might not be as big of a deal or as big of an issue as the person is making it. So the key is finding specific ways to bring that person back to reality with real experiences and evidence. Now on the other side is that sometimes people may minimize the impact of certain behaviors. One of the most common things that comes up with counseling is people who are experiencing some kind of bullying or abuse from other people. If they're experiencing some kind of gaslighting from a significant other or some person that they're in a relationship with, and they're kind of used to that those things being done to them, and then they kind of make excuses for that other person and other people might come in and look and say, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's a big deal that they shouldn't be doing that. That's not okay. But the person in that situation might 
not necessarily realize that they've almost gotten desensitized to that particular thing that's happening. So that's one example of how that can occur. And another way that it can happen, and again, these are just examples. These are definitely not exhaustive explanations of this particular cognitive distortion. But another way it can happen is when that particular person is the one engaging in that behavior that they're minimizing. And this could be somebody who is doing something that is abusive and manipulative. But a lot of times in kids, it's if there is some kind of behavior that they're engaging in that they're minimizing, sometimes it's not something malicious, but it's more something that they don't realize that they're doing. So that can happen as well. So this could be something like they they don't realize how often they are missing their assignments. They think, oh, it's no big deal. I don't do it that often. Or, you know, I I keep my room pretty clean or whatever it is. And, and that might not necessarily be accurate. They minimize the impact or they minimize the problem because they either aren't aware of it or maybe they don't want to deal with it because it is something that is stressful. And again, in that situation, pointing out the evidence and looking at the real experiences and situations are one way that you can work through that as well. Now, there are, when you're thinking about things like cognitive behavioral therapy or other forms of therapy, again, the the therapy that I do is designed to help people through learning certain skills and The way that we do that is a combination of addressing the beliefs about the skill so that the person has the the belief and the willingness to engage in the behavior, but then also giving specific strategies so that they're able to complete the skill and then gradually fading the support that they need in order to do the task so that they don't need someone doing it for them. With executive functioning, that's so important because we don't want kids who are dependent on their parents to do all of those things for them and essentially bypass that child's need to use their own executive functioning skills. A lot of times parents are well-meaning and they will do those things for their child because they want them to get whatever it is done, but it can be a disservice if they don't ever fade that support. But where it can be extremely challenging, especially for parents, is when their kids aren't willing to do the task. And again, things like cognitive distortions can be a big factor in getting kids to do those specific skills and try those things that are going to enable them to get out of their comfort zone and do something that is unfamiliar to them so that they can be challenged and learn a new skill and so that they are able to do the task without their parents' support. And things like magnification, especially when you have someone who isn't quite sure how to plan ahead and estimate how long something is going to take, that can be a big one. And again, like I said, sometimes you have minimization as well, where they might not realize how often they are engaging in a behavior that isn't necessarily serving them. Or that can happen as well with 
tracking time and estimating time because you might have someone on the other hand who they might not necessarily feel overwhelmed, but they haven't planned ahead and left themselves enough time to do a task because they've minimized the amount of effort that they think it's going to take. So the best thing you can do is give your kids strategies that are going to help them learn how long things take and how to plan because that's going to help them build the evidence that's going to counteract some of that minimization and magnification that they might be engaging in that makes it hard for them to get through their day and also for parents and teachers and clinicians to support them through those activities. Now, I wanted to talk about one more cognitive distortion, and and again, I won't get to all of them in this episode, but I wanted to talk about another one that comes up commonly, especially when you have kids who have ADHD or who are neurodivergent in some way and have some type of skill that they are struggling with. So honestly, this could happen with any kid, but if you have someone who has a diverse neurological profile, it can be more likely because if they're in situations that are designed for neurotypical people and don't necessarily take their profile in mind, it can make it challenging for them and they might experience some failure in situations where they could have otherwise been successful had they had the access to accommodations, resources, and knowledge that would have helped them. And that additional cognitive distortion is labeling. So when someone engages in labeling, they are taking a certain circumstance or situation or set of circumstances and experiences and making them mean something about their identity rather than seeing them as what they are, which is just a certain set of circumstances or behaviors. So for example, if a child were to fail a math test and instead of saying something like, that was a hard test, I didn't study, I don't know those skills yet, I can do something different next time, or whatever it is. Instead, they say things like, I'm stupid, I'm bad at math, I'm lazy, I'm not a good student, those kinds of things. So taking that specific situation and making it mean something about themselves and their identity rather than just seeing it as a behavior and a specific circumstance that can be changed in the future. It's kind of like having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, if you're familiar with the work of Carol Dweck. So really someone who is experiencing the cognitive distortion of labeling and has a habit of doing that over time would be someone who's likely to have a fixed mindset, whereas someone who is able to avoid this distortion or minimize the amount of times that they do it is more likely to have a growth mindset and believe that they are able to change their abilities in and see things like that as behaviors that can be changed, skills that can be improved over time rather than innate qualities that can't be changed. And a growth mindset is really important for for everybody, but for neurodivergence, it's very important because, of course, they do have a different neurological profile, but again, it goes back to what you make that mean. 
Just because your brain is different does not mean that you can't learn skills, that you can't change the way that your brain functions. And it definitely doesn't mean you can't be successful. It might be a combination of Again, doing certain behaviors that do impact your neurology, but also acknowledging that you don't have a neurotypical brain, but you can do things in your environment that still allow you to be successful and you can still build skills that just might be done a little bit different compared to other people who have a different brain than you. I address labeling as well in tools like the time tracking journal because labeling and magnification can go together. So for example, if you think that something's gonna be so hard and you're not gonna be able to do it and you procrastinate and you avoid and you don't leave yourself enough time to do it and then you have to rush and you don't do it well and you experience some failure or the outcome isn't what you want or isn't isn't something that you think is a good outcome, then that can then set you up to potentially label and think, oh, I'm not smart, because that happens over and over again. It is challenging to avoid labeling when you do have repeated failures. But the thing is, is that when you start labeling and start to think of yourself as not smart, for example, and then you have a task that is hard and you think you're likely to fail, then that makes it way easier to magnify and think something's going to be more difficult than it is. And so these two can kind of feed off of each other. You start to do one, and then that can start to spiral. And so that's why with kids specifically, it is really important that people who are taking care of them and who are mentoring them or who are parenting them are providing scaffolds to allow them to get out of their comfort zone because that is really one of the most effective ways to help break this cycle that inevitably will happen if they do stay in a very restricted range of activities and they also are really, really reliant on a lot of supports from other people as opposed to them putting those supports in place themselves. Now, what I am definitely not saying is that I'm definitely not saying that it's not okay to have support from other people. It's just that when we're thinking about kids, we want to help them be as independent as possible. And at the same time, acknowledge that it is okay if they need our help, our support, scaffolding from us as they grow, but we do want to help them to get out of their comfort zone as much as possible so that they can be as independent as possible. So this is a good place to wrap up. But if you want some additional support in working through cognitive distortions like magnification, minimization, or labeling, or any of the other cognitive distortions, and you want a tool to help provide some support for your kids during day-to-day tasks, and you also want some tools to help them to build the evidence that they need to start minimizing distortions and building their self-esteem and belief in their ability to 
do difficult tasks and their willingness to go out of their comfort zone, then I highly recommend that you check out the Time Tracking Journal, which is a tool for parents, clinicians, and educators who are supporting kids who are learning the executive functioning skills that they need in order to do tasks that require multiple steps and that are challenging and, in many situations, not their preferred tasks. Things like homework, chores, cleaning, any of those obligations that are so important to their development but might not be the top thing on their priority list or even things that maybe are important to them but do require complex planning in order for them to be successful, the time tracking journal can be really helpful in getting through some of those activities as well. One thing that comes to mind for me is sports practice. A lot of times there are certain skills that you might need to practice at home that will make your athletic activities much more enjoyable because you have a solid foundation and it can help you feel more confident and successful. But those things do require some planning and forethought. So they require some executive functioning as well, and they do require some discipline. So the time tracking journal can be useful for those types of things as well. So to check out the time tracking journal, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. So we will wrap up. Thank you so much for listening. This is our last episode of 2021, but of course, I'll see you next week in episode 41. I just wanted to remind you again, it helps us out so much to get this show into the hands and ears of people who need it if you share it with your friends. So if you know anybody who would benefit from this information, feel free to share the show and this episode with them. And then also it really helps us out if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in episode 41. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE 
to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.